Now, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Philippians 2, verse 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. When uh, Emily Cansini, our administrator, when she saw the passage that I'd chosen for this Sunday, she texted me and she said, are you trying to make everyone cry? And the answer is yes, of course, no. But it is, uh, I found it a daunting task to choose a text uh, for your last sermon as the pastor of a church that you love. I seriously think about that. Of all the texts there are in the Bible, which is the right one to say uh, what you want to say, what I want to say? Which is, by, by the way, why we normally just preach through books of the Bible. So it's not about what I want to say, but about what God wants to say in the, in the next passage, in the next passage, and so on. But today we're going to make an exception uh, to that rule. Well, first of all, it's still about what God has to say today, but I did sort of handpick the passage this time. And I chose this passage in Philippians uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's, it's a letter from a church planter, the Apostle Paul written to a church that he planted, the church in Philippi. And it's very clear that Paul has a very special bond with this church. In verse 12, he affectionately calls them my beloved. Now granted, he also calls the church in Corinth his beloved, even though that church gave him more headaches than any other church plant that he had. And he also called the church in Rome his beloved, even though he had never met them. But... I think when he says it to the church in Philippians, he really, really means it. The dominant theme of this letter is joy. When Paul thinks about this church, what comes to mind is joy. And even the circumstances as to how the church in Philippi got planted reminds me a bit of the story of Resprez. You could read the story of Philippi in Acts 16. Paul and his team were actually trying to go plant a church somewhere else, but literally the Holy Spirit forbid them to go there. God the Spirit did not allow them. Instead, Paul had this dream about a man from Macedonia urging them to come and help them. Philippi is the leading city in the district of Macedonia. So Paul and his friends decided to go there because they concluded, quote, God has called us to preach the gospel to them. Likewise, I don't know how many of you know April and I's story, but we thought many times we were going to go plant a church somewhere else. But the Spirit 
shut every other door and widely open the one to Madison, Wisconsin. We didn't have any visions or dreams or anything like that, but we concluded that God must be calling us to come preach the gospel here. Philippi was the first Christian church plant on European soil, the first one. And while we were by no means the first church in urban and university Madison, we were the first non-distinctly Asian PCA congregation in the city center. When Paul arrived in Philippi, he discovered there was no synagogue there. If you know, Paul's practice was to go to the synagogue first and to preach the death and resurrection of Christ. They often became his first core group for the new church plan. He didn't have that in Philippi. Likewise, when we came here, we had no core group. And I imagine like Paul, we just had to invite anyone and everyone who would listen to come. And now we meet in a synagogue, uh, ironically. The first convert in Philippi was a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia, who I'm convinced if she was alive in Madison today would probably work for Epic. <laughs> so maybe I'm, maybe I'm stretching the similarities just a little bit, but the main reason, the main reason I wanted to preach this text is in verse 12, where Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is a word from a church planter who was no longer present with the church because he went on to plant more churches. It's a message about continuing the mission of the church in the church planter's absence. In fact, it's about doing much more in his absence. So I think Paul says two things to the Philippians in this passage, and they're the same two things that I want to say to you today. The first thing is, remember the story. Remember the story. That is the story. Our story is the story of salvation. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If the Christian gospel could be summed up in one word, it would be salvation. Salvation is the story that God wrote even before time ever began. Salvation is the project that God immediately began after our fall in Genesis 3 to save us and the whole creation from our sins. Salvation is the word for the exodus in the Old Testament. When God's people were delivered from slavery and captivity and oppression in Egypt. And when they groaned under the weight of their suffering and they cried out to God for help, he heard them. And he had compassion and he acted. He raised up a deliverer, Moses, who led them out of Egypt. God rescued his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And when Moses and the people got to the other side of the Red Sea, they sang a song that says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And brothers and sisters, if you thought that was impressive, and it is impressive, the New Testament says that what we have today is an even greater salvation through an even greater Moses. Because in Jesus Christ, we are rescued not just from a human enemy, but from our spiritual enemy, from the one who deceived humanity from the very beginning. We are delivered from the one who held us captive to sin and death. We are saved from the wrath of God for our sins. We are led out through the waters of baptism. And we are heading towards an even greater promised land that is a new heaven and a new earth. And brothers and sisters, when we get to the other side, we're going to sing an even greater song. It's in Revelation. 
It says salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, our story is the story of salvation. A story of salvation in three acts. We have been saved from sin's penalty. We are being saved from sin's power. And we will be saved one day from even sin's presence. And friends, the one at the very center of the story, the main character, the hero, is Jesus whose very name means God saves. From his conception by the Holy Spirit, the angel announced his purpose. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. In Jesus' public ministry on earth, he embraced this purpose when he said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Acts 4.12 reiterates the same when it says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Even these verses, the verses before the ones we read in Philippians 2 are some of the most famous in all the Bible. They are the most beautiful words ever written, I would say, about Jesus. About how he brought about our salvation. So he did it in the most striking way possible. Not by grasping for greatness, but by letting it go. Not by exalting himself, but by humbling himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born a human, just like you and me. Not by standing outside of human pain and suffering, but by entering into it. Not by preserving his life, but by giving it away for us. Not by demanding obedience from us, but by becoming obedient himself, even to the point of death. A death on a cross. Because that's why, that's why he has the name that's above all names. And that's why one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because our story is the story of salvation. Our story is the story of Jesus, whose life, death, and resurrection is what saves us. And Paul says to the church in Philippi, remember the story. In verse 16, he says, hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the story. Remember it. Remember why you are here. You know, in my lifetime, I just turned 42 two days ago. That's how old I am. In my lifetime, I have seen association with Christian faith move from being a social benefit to being a social cost. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It just is. Where I grew up, it was socially advantageous to go to church. Everybody went to church. You're strange if you didn't go to church. But now it is increasingly the exact opposite. You're strange if you do go to church. It is often a social disadvantage to claim the name of Christ. Being a Christian today comes with certain social costs. Sometimes being misunderstood or stereotyped or even mocked. So why would anyone do it? Why do you do it? Why are you here? Why will you still be here after I'm gone? But this is because there's just something about Jesus. Because this beautiful man named Jesus compels you. Because his story of salvation is the best news the world has ever heard. Because this Jesus has captiv captivated the world around. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, what is bothering me incessantly is the question of what Christianity really is, or indeed, who Christ really is for us today. Albert Einstein said, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Other stories lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. H.G. Wells said, I am an historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. So I ask you again, why are you here? Why are you here in this church? It is not because of any social benefit. It's not just because you need friends, though we do. It's not because of our liturgy or our music, no matter how angelic it was today. Nor our ministries. And brothers and sisters, it's certainly not because I am here. Or any other leader or pastor. Friends, you are ultimately here. Because you are enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Because Jesus is beautiful and believable. Because his story is the story of salvation. That's why Jesus came. That's why we came to Madison. A song that's been in my head all week, and fittingly, is by the Avet Brothers. Salvation song. The lyrics go, we came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good, and that's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad. We came to cheer the sad. We came to leave behind the world a better way. That's why I came, and that's why you're here. So I urge you today, remember what our story is all about. Hold fast to this word of life. Secondly, not only remember the story, but also remember your role. Remember your role in the story. You have a role to play in this story. And your role, according to Paul, is to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The story is salvation. Your role is to work it out. Now, this verse has caused quite a bit of confusion, naturally. Because anytime you put the word work that close to salvation, we start asking questions, don't we? We say, wait, I thought salvation was not by works. What about Ephesians 2.8? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Brothers and sisters, thankfully, that is still true. You are not saved by your works, but by the works of Jesus. His life not yours. His death, not yours. His resurrection, which will become yours. That's why it's called good news. And to clear up the confusion, Paul continues in the next verse, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's clear. Salvation is God's work in you from start to finish. He is the author and finisher of your faith. So then what is our role? It is not to work for our salvation. It is to work out our salvation. 
Work out means to live out the story of salvation in your local context. To live out the story in your story. To spread it out in your life and in your city. I love how one commentator puts it that I read this week. He said, work it out means to take ownership of the spiritual well-being of the church and of the city. To take ownership of the spiritual well-being of your community. This is our role to play, and we are to approach it with fear and trembling. That is, with complete seriousness. We should approach it with all that we have even received so great a salvation, and we get to share it with each other and with the world. See, God began the work of salvation. He will bring it to completion. Philippians already said that. Our role is to work it out as he works in you and through you. Friends, that is exactly what the Philippian church was doing when Paul was with them. Notice, Paul doesn't say they need to begin obeying. He says you should continue obeying. As you have always obeyed. He's not calling them from disobedience to obedience, but from obedience to even more obedience. Because the only thing that's changed is that Paul is no longer present with them. And so he challenges them. Just as you worked out your salvation in my presence, now do it even more so in my absence. What this mean, I think what this means is Paul understands our human tendency to do more when the boss is around and less when he's absent, right? Many of you know that I am a, an avid base camp member. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I heard a woo. Uh, this is the group exercise gym on Monroe Street. Well, there's others, but Monroe Street's the best. Uh, this place that combines cardio and strength training in these intense 45-minute classes. I love it. I love it. But let me tell you something. I love it a little more when the coach is watching. <laughs> when she's walking uh, around near my assault air bite, I, I kick it up a little notch, you know. I throw it into gear a little bit and get some work up some sweat on my brow. And when she's on the other side of the gym, I might just ease back a little or a lot. See, friends, this is our human tendency. In the gym, in the classroom, at work, even at church. So Paul says, I want you to do the exact opposite. I want you to obey more in my absence. I want you to work out salvation more now that I'm gone. So what I think is the church in Philippi is in this pivotal place where all church plants get to. Is this Paul's vision or is it ours? Are we doing these things because Paul is here guiding us, watching us? Because it's our calling as a church. And Paul says, all these beautiful things you did when I was present, now do it even more in my absence. Take hold of your role. Work out your own salvation. Live out the story. Take ownership of the spiritual vitality of your community. Finish what we started together. Now next, Paul says something pretty important. He says, as you live out your role in the story of salvation, you got to watch out for something that has plagued the people of God in all times. And that is grumbling and complaining. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, the background of this verse 
is the wilderness wanderings of Old Testament Israel. You can read about it in Numbers 11 and 14 and 16. See, after they had come out of slavery in Egypt, after they had experienced so great a salvation, as they were working out their salvation in the particular context of the wilderness, they were given over to a critical and complaining spirit. And don't get me wrong, there were real reasons. There were real challenges in the wilderness. There were real dangers all around them. They needed food and water and leadership for a whole bunch of people. But in the face of those challenges, the people turned to grumbling and complaining. And though they complained against their leader, Moses, their real complaint was against God. Grumbling and complaining is an ungrateful heart towards what God has provided. You see, the people needed food, so God provided food. He gave them bread, miraculous bread that came down from heaven every morning, and the people complained. Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the meat that we ate back in Egypt with the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. The people needed leadership, so God provided leadership, and Moses and Aaron, but the people grumbled against them. Did these guys even know what they're doing? Are they competent? Maybe we should get new leaders who will lead us back to Egypt. Grumbling and complaining is an ungrateful heart towards what God has provided. It's a heart that doesn't believe that God knows what he's doing. And that's the real fear, isn't it? For the people in the wilderness, they expressed it many times. Has God led us this far only to let us die? Did we come through the plagues and the battle and the sea only to die out here in the wilderness? And brothers and sisters, maybe that's a real fear for you, for this church, as we approach this transition. Maybe your heart is saying, has God led us this far only to let us die? Did we come through everything we've been through as a community? Political turmoil, a pandemic, homelessness as a church only to die in the interim. Sometimes that can give rise to a critical or complaining spirit. One way to interpret the word disputing in verse 14 is foolish reasoning. Foolish reasoning is when you become convinced that God is no longer with you, no longer leading you. Brothers and sisters, this is foolish reasoning. Because if Pentecost, if this day tells you anything, it tells you that God is always with you. He has actually come nearer to you now than he has ever been before through his very spirit. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is always at work in you, through you. He is always providing for you. See, what is tragic is that the first generation did die in the wilderness. But it wasn't because God abandoned them. It's because they couldn't abandon, they, they couldn't abandon them, their own grumbling and complaining. The only other time Paul uses this phrase is in 1 Corinthians 10, where he says that the people died in the wilderness because of their grumbling. And Paul is saying to the Philippians, what I'm saying to you, don't be like Israel in the wilderness. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's what the complaining wilderness generation was called in Deuteronomy 32.5, a crooked and a twisted generation. 
He says, among people like that, you will shine as lights in the world. Brothers and sisters, this is your role to play. This is how we work out the salvation story in Madison. By not giving in to grumbling. And thus demonstrating that we are children of God. Who trusts that our Heavenly Father knows what He's doing. Even if we can't understand it. That among an anxious generation, you will shine as lights. Resurrection Madison, this is who you are. You are the light of the world. I didn't say this, Jesus did. The very source of our light. In Matthew 5, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And he gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is our role. You are light in a dark world. You are salt in a bland world. You are how the gospel takes flesh today as you live it out in community, as you pour yourself out as an offering for each other and for the world. This is your role to play in the story. Shine. Shine as the lights that you are in Christ. Let your light shine so that the world can see Jesus in you. The very first event we ever did as a church plant before we ever launched public worship. The very first public event we ever did was a Lessons and Carol service at Crescendo. It's on December 18th, 2016. And that night after the service, I received my very first email from a visitor who happened to attend that service. It was a college student named Grace. This is the email she wrote to me. I said, hi, Matt. I came up to you earlier tonight to thank you after seeing Lessons and Carols at Crescendo. I told you that I loved it, and I wanted to learn more about your church, and I wasn't lying. Tonight changed me. Sorry to be a little dramatic, but since I've come to college here at UW, I've been looking for a church that I could truly become a part of. Tonight, God spoke to me in a way that I've never felt before. I felt his word in ways that I've never experienced. I loved hearing the Christmas story and its origins by exploring its history throughout the Bible. I felt like I could finally find a place where I can continue my faith journey. When we were singing Joy to the World, I started to cry because tonight is one of the first times I've truly felt the wonders of his love. Thank you so much. I'm so lucky to have wandered into this coffee shop tonight. I look forward to learning more about Jesus with this church. Grace. P.S. Big fan of the Americana versions of the classical Christmas songs. I love that. <laughs> Me too. That's it, brothers and sisters. That's what we're about as a church from beginning to end. The story of salvation. And a people that are working out that salvation in their city so that our friends and neighbors can truly feel the wonders of his love. Because as you have done this in my presence... Now do so much more in my absence for the glory of God and for the good of Madison. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our fathers, we think about the challenges that are before us. Our, the first word on our lips is help. 
and we thank you that you have provided help. Even today, we celebrate the help that you have sent to us, which is your very own spirit, to comfort us, to guide us, to convince us, to save us from foolish reasonings that we think you have abandoned us. Lord, you are with us. You are with us to help us remember the story. You are with us to help, out, help us live out our role in that story. I pray for this beloved church. Lord, you would cause their light to shine in this place. Not just so people would look at them, not just so people would look at their leaders or their pastor or anyone else. They would look at Jesus. They would see him for who he is. This luminous figure of the Nazarene. Lord, make us restless until our hearts rest in you. Cause our lights to shine. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.